this programme. BBC Radio 4 News. It's not often that fine art makes you want to laugh out loud, but there can be a funny side. With contributions from Brian Sewell, Ralph Steadman and Woody Allen, Ha Ha Art is in half an hour. But first on BBC Radio 4, a brand new series with the broadcaster and writer John Ronson. Tonight's programme is dedicated to the extraordinary story of Mary Turner Thompson. John Ronson on The Internet Date from Hell. Usually in this programme we take three or four stories that share a theme and then we weave them together into an interesting tapestry. But this week we came across a story so extraordinary we decided to dedicate the whole programme to it. It's the story of Mary Turner Thompson and her experiences with internet dating. I met three blokes. The first one was a really sweet guy, really liked him, but no physical attraction there at all for either of us. The second one came across as the mad axe murderer and I ran mentally screaming from the date. And the third one I dated for about two or three months, but he turned out to be a kind of social parasite and was really just wanting a new social life. And so I sort of uh, left that one behind me. Mary's fourth date seems more promising. He was a very chivalrous man called Will Jordan perfect gentleman. He would walk on the roadside rather than, you know, he would just, everything was very considerate, you know, he would serve you first. He would, just the perfect gentleman, but not arrogantly, just very quietly, very humble. Yeah. That walking on the roadside thing, so you have to be really thoughtful and gallant to do that. Mm. It's little things that show sort of gallantry in somebody, like uh, you'd be having a drink of water and he'd have a bottle of water and he'd make sure he didn't finish it, he'd sort of pass it over to you to give you the last bit. You know, they're just little things, constantly just showing how much he was considering you and thinking about you. My wife gets very annoyed if I order food before her in a restaurant. <laughs> but I think, am I, for some bizarre reason, doomed to always be the last person to order in a restaurant? Once in a while it's nice for me to do the, the ordering first. I do hold the door open for people, Good. but sometimes <laughs> I, I do it too soon and uh-huh. they're still crossing the road and they have to break out into a run and I'm <laughs> and then it gets awkward and I, and I sort of wish I hadn't bothered but Will never showed any of that no no he was always the middle class American gentleman who would open the car door for you and all that kind of stuff and he was just, American yes and you fell in love absolutely it's quite a quite a building I love this the acoustics. You've got you've got giant sculptures of eagles. It's like a, it's, it's a huge grand pillared hallway you yeah, live in. It's great. It's such a fine. This is Mary's grand Edinburgh flat, where she's got an album of photographs of the early days being courted by the handsome Will Jordan. So that's what he looked like in two thousand and one. First met him. He seemed very friendly. And this is around I mean, the time that you were yeah, first courting, and he was buying your presents yes. and. That was our second date. Was this at your house? This or was, was at my flat in Portobello, where I made this disastrous pasta dish. Uh, he was very polite about it and, <laughs> and then got a business call and had to go through for 45 minutes and talk to someone in the other room. Uh, but he does look so. very, you know, he's handsome and gallant looking and, you know, macho and he's, you very know... Very fit as yeah, well. Yeah, very fit. You can see his, his kind of chest muscles rippling underneath his tight top. Uh-huh. So and I can see what you saw in him. If I'm going to criticise at all, I'd say very big gums. Yes. It's not a nice photo, actually, with that yeah. one. Because he didn't usually smile like that, but he was just grinning. 
he constantly was telling me how wonderful I was and how much difference I made to his life. And he was working 24-7 and told me how his whole life had been based upon work and he'd never had a family because he couldn't have children. When I introduced him to my daughter, they got on terribly well and he was really, really fond of her. And did he have any bad character traits at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was so work-focused that he would forget appointments, he would forget to meet me sometimes. It, mostly he was late, but he would not phone me or he would phone me and say he was on his way and then not turn up, which was intensely frustrating. It was the only thing we ever argued about, actually. And did you say, you know, well, what were you doing? Oh, yeah. But it was always, you know, that he was working, that he was in a basement, he couldn't get a signal. He was working on IT contracts. After they'd been seeing each other for two months, Will proposed to Mary. He gave her a teddy bear with a ring attached to a ribbon around its neck. Mary said yes. This is Mary's father. I thought he was charming, uh, and I was annoyed that he, in fact, had let Mary down on the first date, but he seemed to have repaired himself since then. He asked if he could marry Mary, and as she appeared to be in love with him, I said yes. It must have been, uh, you know, it's a nice old-fashioned thing to do, to ask a man for his daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, yes, uh, but in fact that has happened with my other two daughters. I thought it was fine and it seemed to be acceptable. The wedding day approached, but Will continued to annoyingly turn up late, or not at all, for dates. So Mary thought she ought to at least look him up on the internet. I tried to find him online, I tried to find all the information out about him I could, and found his company name, and I pulled the company house records. And That's found... quite a lot to do, for a bit of suspicion. Well, it's, I couldn't find any information about him, and I hadn't met his friends. You know, all these things had been promised and they hadn't happened. So I got the company records, and he wasn't a director of the company, which is what he'd initially said, he was the company secretary. And he was registered as an address in Gullen. So uh, it's a, a town about 15 miles outside Edinburgh. So I sort of deliberated for a long, long time wondering whether I should go and think he's got an address he never told me about. So I thought, you know, this is not on. So I went and had a look. And so Mary found herself like a character in a mystery novel, driving 15 miles to a town called Gullen to an address belonging to her fiancé that she didn't know existed. She takes me on the same drive now. So where are we now? Just coming into Gullen. Gullen is a posh seaside town near Edinburgh. It is. It's a very posh seaside town near Edinburgh. And it's just up to the right here. And uh, if I can remember correctly... This is Sandy Lane. Sandy Lane, that's it, yes. Not this one, the next one. So if you park just, just on the left here or the right, whichever. Okay. Uh, and that's the house just there. What, the, this huge house with yeah. the green yep, gate? Yeah, very big house with the green gate. And I actually sat in the car just over there for ages looking at the house. And what and could you see? I could see children's play equipment, a big garden surrounding the whole house. I mean, you can see it's a big house. It's a, it's, um, it's a really huge house. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a mansion. Mm -hmm. 
but I mean, for the, for the man I knew at the time, who was single, couldn't have children. This house was just completely unrealistic. It did not fit. Back in Edinburgh, Mary confronted Will. She told him she'd been to Gullen. Will went quiet. Then he explained that it wasn't how it looked. He got out his phone, went into another room and was talking on the phone for about 45 minutes. And I was sitting there, seething, confused. I couldn't imagine what it could possibly be that would not be what it was seemed like. And then he came back and said, you know, right, I've got clearance to tell you. And said, I'm a CIA intelligent. I work for ODCI, which is the official department of central intelligence, more commonly known as the CIA. And here's the website, and here's their private access. You have to get through the website to show you that I am a CIA intelligence officer. The house you came across was a safe house. There's a whole team of us work from there. Didn't you notice the antenna on the roof? You know damn well I can't have children. What on earth makes you think I would have a house with children in it? He said, once we're married and the office know that we're a permanent relationship, you'll be included in the loop and things will work out okay. And he had to convince them that you were trustworthy? No, because I'd already been partially security checked because I was dating him, but they'd have to do more full security check if I was going to be included in the loop. Of course, Mary thought what anyone would think, that it was all rubbish and Will was just lying. But things would soon start to happen that would make her realise that everything he'd said was in fact true. He used to carry a gun. I could feel it through his jacket. I certainly would see the holster, but he would lock it up every time he came home. He'd have gadgets, he had money packets from the MOD because he was on succumbent to the MOD at the time, so... Golly! I mean, you must have felt like you were living in a fantasy. Mm. In all the photographs of Will that Mary has at her Edinburgh flat, he's wearing the same quite high-tech-looking watch. Mary says the watch used to drive her mad. His watch, which used to vibrate and had GPS and would all sorts of things, would actually call him away. That bloody watch, hated it. Um, what, well, he had a vibrating watch? The watch, yes. Would it would wake him, him wake him up in the middle of the night. He would tell me that he'd actually been you know, called away and the watch itself would vibrate and then he'd fall back into bed and fall asleep again, as you do when your alarm goes off. And uh, five minutes later, he would leap up like he'd been actually stung by something and the watch would be vibrating again. And I, I asked him once how they knew he wasn't moving, basically, and he said, well, because it's got GPS in the watch, and so they could actually tell that he wasn't moving. I know what I'd be thinking if I was in your shoes. Uh-huh. I'd be thinking I've seen enough episodes of Spooks to know that quite often the spouses are in danger. Yes. Did that cross yes. your mind? Yes. Got burgled once. And I was obviously concerned that this might be uh, something worse than just somebody stealing my DVD player. Suddenly you were now the fiancé of a CIA agent. If somebody breaks in, you have to assume that they're terrorists. Yes. Could have been Al-Qaeda. Well, or just unsavory. It's just, uh, you know, people that are actually wanting to be able to manipulate him. Mm. And that's a scary thing, is that you or your child could be kidnapped to be able to manipulate them into doing something. But he came rushing around with a sort of a, a scanner equipment to scan the place for bugs. And I was so relieved that there wasn't any intelligence equipment installed in my house that I actually didn't mind being burgled at all. I was just so relieved it was ordinary burglars. <laughs> it just didn't bother me at all. Will told Mary that her parents had also been partially security checked as they now had a CIA agent for a future son-in-law. I wanted to ask him questions about the CIA 
and we did here in this house. And he answered the questions, but later he told Mary that we had let him down because he should not have told us about his involvement with the CIA, and the CIA were very cross with him. After this, Mary and Will decided that they ought to stop talking to her parents about Will's activities. Mary says the worst thing about being a CIA agent's fiancé was the absences. He was always off on missions, but other than that, everything was great. Whenever he was with me, it was absolutely blissful. He was lovely, he would cook, he would clean, he would look after the kids. In May 2001, I got pregnant, and this was a huge miracle, because he couldn't have children. So he was over the moon about that. So, so did you marry him? I did, yes. In April 2002, Israel launched an attack on the town of Jenin in the Palestinian territories. It was in retaliation for the murder of 30 Jewish civilians who'd been celebrating Passover at a hotel in Netanya a week earlier. The Israeli army sent in bulldozers. They destroyed houses and killed 53 Palestinians. Will told Mary the news that the CIA was sending him there. He actually sent me satellite pictures of what was going on and all the people that were getting killed in the houses, being bulldozed in the houses. It was all horrendous stuff. I would get lots and lots of SIM updates on my phone, ODCI relay and MOD relay coming to my phone with no return number, just beep, 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 and it would just say ODC relay. I would just let you know he's okay, he's safe, not to worry. I had to keep my phone with me at all times. So there was any messages there, or if he was home suddenly I could actually see him. Being in Janine changed Will, Mary says. He'd seen so many horrors there. He looked thin and withdrawn. This is an interesting photograph. This was probably only a, a month after he came back, and he was very ill. He was gaunt, he was yeah, thin. He lost a lot of weight. Lot of, lost a lot of weight. He was very, very pale and very unwell, and his feet were in a dreadful state. I thought he was close to a nervous breakdown. I really did. It was then that Will decided he wanted out of the CIA. He didn't want to be involved with the organisation anymore in the service because he just had totally lost faith with everything that was going on. That's what um, happened at the end of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. He also quit the service because he'd seen the dark side. I haven't actually seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose you wouldn't want to after what happened. It's kind of like, it has put me off a bit, I have to yeah. say. And so Will left the CIA. Mary was relieved. She sold her house and gave him the money to help pay for his transition to everyday life. Will started looking around for ordinary, non-CIA work. He visited an entrepreneur called Simon Hulse. He came into my office one morning and we needed our network fixing and he came in just to fix it. He fixed it very well, very efficiently and seemed a very nice guy actually. Clearly very bright and capable. Will's new life was suiting him. He was beginning to leave behind his CIA past, including the fake wife in Gullen, the asset he'd previously had as his cover. But then events took an unexpected turn. In November 2005, he was arrested because there'd been a problem with the credit card that he'd used to fix a car. But he was fine because he had a get-out-of-jail-free 
code word he could use, so it was all all right. Did he tell you what the code word was? No, I did ask him several times, so it would be fun to have used it, but no, he didn't. <laughs> okay. I knew they discovered the papers for his asset in the car, so they were charging him with bigamy. But that was fine, because he told me that the marriage never actually existed. They were just forged papers. The forged papers were all part of Will's CIA cover, that he was an ordinary married man living in Gullen. By now, Mary knew that his wife was actually another CIA agent. And then he told me that they actually were charging him with not registering his address under the Sex Offenders Act. And that basically, ten years ago, he'd had to go into a sex offenders prison to interview somebody and that uh, they'd had to set up a scenario for him to do that. Um, but he, under no circumstances, had ever done anything along those lines. So the CIA had had to uh, create a... Fabricate a charge to get him into the prison. Social services, unaware of Will's former CIA status, turned up at Mary's door. They were concerned about him because he had a stepdaughter with me of seven years old. And I had to go through this knowing this man was a hero and not being able to say anything. And it was hell, absolute hell on earth. And uh, eventually I was getting very concerned about social services taking my children away or something because I'm one thing, I, I'm a very loving mother. And so I decided, in fact, just at the end of March, that I'd had to end the relationship anyway, even if he was a hero, not a criminal, because I wouldn't have my children taken away from me. And so Mary reluctantly broke up with Will. It broke her heart that Will's undercover status was the catalyst that ended the relationship. And then, on April the 5th, 2006, the telephone rang. The 5th of April was the day that Will went into court for bigamy. I was expecting a call from his lawyer. I answered the phone, expecting it to be the lawyer, and she said, are you Mary Turner Thompson? And I said, yes. And she said, are you also Mrs Jordan? And I said, yes. She said, I'm the other Mrs. Jordan. And then she said, have you been told I'm an agent? And I said, yes. And she said, I've been told you're an agent. And that was what you could call a wake-up call. <laughs> and that's when I found out that everything that I'd lived through in the last six years was all a lie. That he had, as far as I know now, 11 children by seven women that he's been married before in America. He's a con man, he's a paedophile, he's a bigamist, he's, you know, he's a sociopath, basically. He has no conscience or empathy for others, but just plays life as a game, you know, it's a chess game. It was a completely physical reaction. A huge rush of heat going around my whole body and then just started to shake violently. Mary says Will is a sociopath. There's a book called The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout, a psychiatrist at the Harvard Medical School. The book claims that one in 25 of us are sociopaths. If you have 50 friends, two of them are sociopaths. In a crowded restaurant, there'll be a number of sociopaths. We've been hearing about a man called Will Jordan. He met this woman, Mary, on an internet date. At first, he was incredibly gallant. He would do things that I personally would never think about doing, like walking on the road side of the pavement. Is that something that a sociopath might do? Absolutely. I think Shelley said sometimes the devil is a gentleman. That is something people really do need to know, that not only do sociopaths not look 
evil. They don't snarl. They don't look like monsters. In fact, as a group, they tend to be more charming than most people. They have no real warm emotions of their own, but will study the rest of us, display emotion. Most of us would feel guilty if we ate the last piece of chocolate cake in the kitchen. A sociopath is someone who has absolutely no conscience, a sense of guilt, in doing absolutely anything at all, including hurting his or her own children. Martha says that, of course, a lot of criminals are sociopaths, but there's a lot of everyday sociopaths walking around too. Tin pot dictators and big fish in small ponds. It's the boss or the co-worker, not just who's mean or that you don't like, but the boss or the co-worker who likes to make other people jump just for the pleasure of seeing them jump. It's the spouse who sometimes marries for money, uh, sometimes marries to look socially normal, but who inside the marriage really shows no love, at least after the initial charm wears off. And it is a hard thing to imagine. I don't know how many people are listening to this program, but I assume around a million, which means that 40,000 people listening right now are sociopaths. What, what do we say to them? Turn yourselves um, in? Turn yourselves in. So I'm addressing 40,000 sociopaths. What would I say? Yeah. You know, the arrogance would hold up that someone sitting there listening to this at this very moment would be thinking, one, she's lying about there being conscience, or two, that poor dear, she's restrained by this and uh, thinks we should do something about this when, in fact, she should be more like me. There's also presumably 40,000 spouses of sociopaths uh, listening, too. And do, mm. we, do we say to them, just leave, just pack your bags and go? I would love to say to them, just leave. I think that, you know, the best way to deal with a sociopath is to avoid, you're not going to hurt somebody's feelings. There are no feelings there to be hurt. There may be some of your audience sitting there wondering, am I a sociopath and getting pretty scared about that? And my response to that is, if you have enough, enough social sense to wonder that and to be alarmed by that, by definition, you cannot be a sociopath. So don't let that scare you too much. Can you be cured? Can you be cured? No. Um, no. We don't know how to do it, and there's no willingness on the part of the group affected to be changed. Do you think a lot of political leaders are sociopaths? I think there are a fair amount, yes. Sociopaths love power. They love winning. If you take loving kindness out of the human brain, there's not much left except the will to win. The higher you go up the dominance ladder, probably the greater the statistic becomes, which is a very frightening thought. So does that mean that, that all or most of the terrible things that have happened in the world, the wars, the injustices, the exploitation, are committed by this 4% of the population who are sociopaths? I think that a lot of the kinds of things you just mentioned are initiated by sociopaths. I have to say it's quite a frightening and huge thought that the 96% of us wandering around down here are having our lives guided by these 4% of people who are initiating the way the world turns, by and large. It is. It's, it's a large thought, and it is a thought that people don't 
have very often, I think, because we all are raised with the idea that deep down everybody has conscience. Martha Stout. Will Jordan was never diagnosed as a sociopath, although he showed many of the characteristics of one. And now he's serving five years in prison, having pleaded guilty to bigamy, fraud, not registering his whereabouts under the Sex Offenders Act, and illegally possessing a stun gun. He's got at least ten children by four different women in the UK and the US. All in all, over the years, Mary gave him £188,000. Simon Hulse, the businessman we heard earlier, also gave Will Jordan £20,000 for IT work he never carried out. It drove Simon nuts. I went through a period of a couple of months of pleading, cajoling, leaving messages. I would be sending him an email, perhaps every half hour, and he would respond. He would say, I'm just about to leave to come and see you. you know, and we'd go on like this, and then by the time you got through the whole day, you'd realise that he was never going to show up. Did you think sending an email every half an hour would be like a sort of war of attrition, that if I keep going, he'll, he's going to grumble? I had watched in the early stages of our relationship when he had taken me on board and told me what a wonderful person I was and that the previous clients that he'd had were really quite terrible people. And what I had realised quite clearly was that I was now one of those terrible people because he was now on to the next person. And by the way, he's got work with Microsoft and the BBC for a fact. He says he has also worked at the office of the Deputy Prime Minister it's quite feasible that he has actually done that as well. I see Will as a predator. I don't see him as a human being anymore. The only way I can describe it is you can look at a tiger tearing up an antelope or a zebra. If the zebra managed to escape and get away with its life, it wouldn't actually be offended by what had happened to it because it is just in the nature of the hunter and the predator to hunt and kill. And Simon? Simon doesn't see Will as a predator. He sees him as an ordinary human being who has slighted him. He's taken it personally. How did it feel to learn that it was all a con, that he just made the whole thing up? Unfortunately, it did not come as a surprise. We didn't like him anymore because of the number of occasions on which he has let Mary down. In some ways, one felt relieved. And, but very, very unhappy for Mary. Mary has written a book about her relationship with Will Jordan. It's called The Other Mrs. Jordan. I was kept pregnant and kept tired and kept stressed. And I was in basically a state of stress and fear for six years. And things that, looking back on rationally now, you realise oh my God, that just doesn't make sense. This is all part of the plan, is if you keep somebody stressed, tired and in distress, then they don't think rationally, especially if they can't talk to anyone about it. So where did he get the satellite pictures from? Don't know. There were all sorts of things he was doing at the time. He was working on the execution videos and I saw them on his laptop before they came on television. I was sitting there one day and the news came up that Yasser Arafat was dead. And without looking up, he said, no, he's not. And about two or three hours later, they reported that they had incorrectly reported he was dead. He'd had a heart attack. He wasn't dead. He died about two weeks later. Was that just luck? I have no idea. I've had IT guys check how he'd managed to communicate with me through the ODCI network, and they don't know. <laughs> Do you think maybe he was working for the CIA? Do you know how many people have said that to me? 
No, but now you're starting to understand why I believed it. I don't know how he did it, but you don't have to know how a magician does a trick to know it isn't magic. I remember Mary telling me about the high-tech CIA watch Will had that would buzz in the middle of the night. This watch had all this supposedly amazing technology in it. Oh, um, I hated that watch. I absolutely hated it with a passion. And what did the watch turn up? It's just a watch. <laughs> it's just a watch. John Ronson on the Internet Date from Hell was written and presented by John Ronson. It was produced for BBC Radio 4 by Laura Parfit at Unique, the production company. In a moment, we'll be bringing out the hidden hilarity in art. But first, you'll be pleased to learn that the always hilarious I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue rolls back into town next week. King's Cross Station, a royal lobster. <laughs> Dialogue, an awful piece of wood. <laughs> measles, measles, uh, what artists use for self-portraits. <laughs> Laburnum, a French barbecue. <laughs> at the helm will be Humphrey Littleton and the series kicks off on Monday evening at half past six. Now on BBC Radio 4, Ha Ha Art, in which Nick Baker draws on expert and comic opinion to illustrate what people find funny about the subject of art. Oh, the life of an artist, sad one. Unless they're successful, poor blighters. I take off my hat if I had one. To painters and sculptors and writers. Art. Art. Art history. Art appreciation. As a serious subject, we tend to approach it as outsiders. It's not something we do ourselves, is it? We did it at school, made jokes about it then. What do you call a surrealist painter wearing boxing gloves? Mohammed Dali. The Mona Lisa was brought up in court on charges of murder, but it turned out that she'd been framed. Vincent.